like to invite you to join me in the Old Testament book of Job. We've been studying for the last several weeks through the idea of bouncing back, being resilient. And this morning we're going to enter into a story that will teach us some valuable principles in bouncing back from unimaginable loss. This season of the year tends to expose our failures or life changes, perhaps more than any other time of year. We're more conscious of our financial situation when we try to buy gifts for other people. We are more conscious of changes within our family dynamic. Perhaps even our health is different than it has been. And at this time of year, we like things to be picturesque or the same, and times change. I can remember when we went on vacation and we were poor. How many of you remember when you were young and vacationing and being poor? And what that means is you would just go to where your parents were from, and that was vacation. This would have been in the 80s. Yes, I'm that old, even though I look 25, I was old enough to be alive in the 80s. And we drove a K car, a Dodge K-series car. How many of you remember Dodge K-cars, the Chrysler K-cars? They, they all looked the same, and there were just everywhere on the road were K-cars. And we had a station wagon. It was a burgundy color. I reiterate, we weren't wealthy. So it wasn't in the greatest shape. I can remember we visited a church on a Sunday morning, and when we exited the church, it was a large church, and there was a lot of cars in the parking lot, and as we walked out, we walked towards a burgundy K car. There were many of them in the parking lot. We, as a family, loaded into the car, and as we sat in the car, I began in my little mind to look around and think, something's different. I don't remember these floor mats. I don't remember this smell being in our car. My dad sat there and he tried to get his key in the ignition and this car is not starting. What happened to our car? It wasn't our car. We loaded our entire family into someone else's car. It looked exactly the same. It was the same external style and color, but on the inside there was just stuff that was different and the key didn't work. And what I am aware of is when we come to this season, it looks the same. It may feel the same, but we are painfully aware of every idiosyncratic difference because it's supposed to be postcard perfect. How do we bounce back when we get to this time of year? How do we return to form when we are being compressed or stretched or twisted and it's just different and we've been learning those lessons and this morning we're going to talk through a story. It's a big story that no way can we cover it successfully or fully in one message But we'll establish some principles on how to bounce back from unimaginable loss when perhaps we're never more aware of it than now. In Job chapter 1, we encounter a man who is synonymous with suffering, Job. Universal sufferer, that's how we know Job. At times, as we get into the book of Job, I'm slow to even study because it causes us to grapple with, to wrestle with, Really challenging questions like, why do righteous people suffer? Where's God when tragedy strikes? If God is all loving, how can he allow human suffering? And people really do wrestle with that. Does God really care about us? Where is God when I'm hurting? 
Why is God silent when I'm suffering? And we enter into a book. It's a lengthy book, the book of Job. It's actually a long poem. To be quite honest with you, it's a long poem that attempts to answer a lot of these questions, and and we can't answer them all, and I don't want to be cheap with how I address it. I'm convinced that too often we try to give people fast answers, one or two verses and a pat on the back and send them on their way, and they're probably leaving just as cold and empty as when they came. But there are principles that can greatly help us. And as the book opens here in chapter 1, God wants to clear any doubt from our minds. Job is a real person. Job existed in an actual region of the world. He had actual substance. He had real children. He had a real family. And more importantly, God wants us to know that Job was everything that we would expect a man to be in order to be incredibly blessed. I want to begin reading in verse 1. And we'll read all the way through chapter 42 to really establish the story. We won't. But the verses will be here on the screen. And if you don't have your Bible, I hope you'll look there so that you can know this is God's word. In Job chapter 1 and verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. It's as if God wants us to understand beyond any shadow of a doubt That Job will suffer and he didn't deserve it. In fact, if ever there was a man who ever had the right to say life is unfair, it is Job. In verse 2, And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Now there's a lot of Bibleology in there. But what the Bible is communicating to us is that Job was a man of great substance. Job was exceedingly wealthy. Job would have by any assessment be viewed as a great success. And we are told very clearly that he was perfect. How many of you have been looking for Mr. Perfect? How many of you found him? Oh, stop. (laughs) I was actually scanning the room to see if my wife was here. She went to the early service. I am so imperfect. She's like, I'm not doing that twice. (laughs) Well, here's what the Bible tells us about Job, that Job was perfect and upright. Now, that doesn't mean that Job was sinless, but that he was complete. He was a mature man of righteousness. That cannot be doubted. That very word perfect is related to our word integrity. And what the Bible is teaching us is that Job was a man of unchanging integrity. God himself testified of Job in that way. And you cannot have a higher testament than God himself. In chapter 2, God is having a conversation with Satan, and we'll get there. And this is how God assesses Job in verse 3. The Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth. He shuns evil. And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. You cannot have a higher witness to your spiritual maturity and uprightness than God himself. Literally, he was without hypocrisy. You don't meet people like that. In the face of his friend's accusations, which were not rightly leveled against him, 
Even when God was silent in the midst of his suffering, Job maintained his integrity. He didn't change who he was. The very first verse and on down through will indicate to us that he feared God. He shunned evil. He respected God. He held him in high regard. (coughs) Coughing into a mic is a good thing. I need a cough button. (coughs) Did you hear that? So I don't have the cough button worked out. I even put my hand there to act like it, but you heard it. Didn't work. Not only was Job a man of great substance, he was a man of high spiritual character, and he was incredibly blessed and favored by God. Now, this wasn't because he was a shrewd businessman. This wasn't because he had keen intellect. This wasn't because he just had a lot of capital to work with from the get-go. It is clear within Scripture, it is because God blessed him greatly. I want you to just notice this. The Bible will tell us that, again, God and Satan are having a conversation. And God is asking Satan, he brings Job up, to assess Job's life. And Satan responds to God in verse 9 and says, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands. And his substance has increased in the land. In effect, God asks Satan to view Job, and Job says, well, yeah, he fears you. You're compensating him to get respect from him. You have blessed the work of his hands, and you have increased his material wealth so that he stands above everybody else in the land. You have put a hedge of protection about him. Of course he fears you. Now, I want to linger on that for just a moment because we know Job is the universal sufferer. We know his name as synonymous with hardship. But I think from the onset, we have to lay the foundational principle that the same God who puts a hedge of protection about Job, the same God who blesses his material substance and gives him great increase is the same God who allows suffering. And I emphasize He is the same God. Now, the Bible told us that Job had seven sons and three daughters. That's a large family. And we might think perhaps that's where we'll find the chink in Job's armor. He didn't lead his family right. Well, in verse 4, here's what we read. His sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them, rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And then this phrase, thus Job did continually. Now Job is an old book, chronologically speaking, the first book written. You say, well now Genesis is the chronologically Job's old. So like the patriarchs of old, Job was acting like the priest for his family. And what the Bible says is when they would go and feast his children, Job would offer up sacrifices for them because he thought in their hearts, maybe they haven't done it in the open. Maybe I don't have evidence that they're living wrong, but perhaps in their hearts they have cursed God. And so he sent and sanctified them and he offered up sacrifices on their behalf. He even led his home right. I'm trying carefully to show to you that this is the example of a man who is the perfect picture of God's purposes in humanity on earth. 
Job was perfect and upright. He was a man of integrity without hypocrisy. He feared God, respected God, held God and God's word and mandate in high regard. He shunned all forms of evil. He was exceedingly wealthy, the wealthiest man in his region of the world, and he was doing a good job with his family. If you want to see somebody who is the representative for God's purpose in man on earth, you've just met him. And then we also meet in Job chapter 1, our adversary. In the New Testament, and and I know you're familiar with this verse, or, or should be, or will be momentarily, Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now that is an interesting phraseology. Isn't that interesting imagery? Peter tells us that Satan is the adversary of every believer. And then he tells us about the nature of Satan. He is like a roaring lion who walks about the earth seeking whom he may devour. Now you might wonder, where is that imagery rooted? Well, number one, Peter himself had to face off with Satan and he fell when he denied the Lord Jesus Christ and went out and wept bitterly. He's writing from experience. But if you read in Job chapter 1 and verse 7, you'll note an important phrase. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? God asks Satan, in essence, Where did you just come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. That's why we have Peter use this imagery. Now, for every young person that's here, for every young person that's listening, for everybody, I want to say, anybody who tries to convince you that the devil represents a party and a good time, remind yourself of the devouring, hateful ways of the devil here in Job. Remind yourself that Satan made Job suffer. Never forget that Satan destroyed Job's possessions, and he wanted his children killed, and he ruined his health. And he wants to afflict your life and my life with suffering just the same. Frankly, we're not conscious enough of the spiritual warfare that we are engaged in. Charles Spurgeon was preaching and he said this, Satan hates to see happy Christians glorifying God. He's well aware that mournful Christians often dishonor the glory of God by mistrusting it. And he thinks if he can worry us until we no more believe in the constancy and goodness of the Lord, he shall have robbed God of his praise. That's how Satan works. He's a destroyer. He's a devourer. He's an accuser. He's hateful. Now you say, hold on, Pastor. A couple of times you've referenced that God and Satan were having a conversation. That's weird. Well, in verse 6, here's what we read. Now, there was a day, and this keeps us in the line of, of listening to a story. This is a true story. And he says, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them. Now, sons of God is a phrase that can refer to angels. In fact, in Job chapter 38 and verse 7, Sons of God and angels, they are synonymous. It's the same thing. So I don't know what this business meeting looked like. I don't know what this collection looks like. I don't know the purpose of it. But I do know there was a day when sons of God, the angels, are in the presence of God. And there is communication back and forth. And walking amongst them is Satan himself. Don't 
forget that he was an angel, a fallen angel now, but an angel to begin with. You say, now, I've been taught that, that the presence of sin cannot be in the presence of God, and you've been a little deceived because Satan does have access to the presence of God. In fact, he accuses Joshua in Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1 in the presence of God. Revelation informs us that he is accusing the brethren, he's accusing believers day and night before God. In Luke, as I referenced a moment ago, the Lord Jesus told Peter, Peter, Satan hath desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat. Pray so that you don't enter into temptation. And then Jesus says, and I've already prayed for you that you would not capitulate. That's why when they're in the garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is praying under great agony and he walks back and Peter and James and John are asleep, he rouses them and says, pray, Satan desires to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Now you may not be into the Greek language in any way, shape or form, but when Jesus tells Peter, Satan hath desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat, every verb that he uses is past tense indicating to us that Satan has, in a, in a similar vein to Job, gone in the presence and begun to accuse Peter. Now, Peter sleeps, as we often do, and when the time of denial arrives, Peter does deny three times, and he goes out and he weeps bitterly, which gives him that suffering experience to tell us, you be sober, and you be vigilant, and you don't sleep, because you have an adversary just like I did, the devil who walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Just be aware, spiritual warfare exists, and it's real. I also think it's intriguing that in verse 8 of Job 1, it was God who brought up Job. And the Lord said unto Satan, hast thou considered my servant Job? And God assesses him. That there's none like him in the earth. And that's where Satan comes back. And Satan accuses Job. The only reason that Job follows you is because you've blessed him and protected him. Because you've increased his substance. And then God allows. He acquiesces. He, he gives him in verse 12. The Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. I, I think we can establish a Bible principle here that we all need to understand. God is in complete control of Satan. Satan cannot do anything that God would want to stop him from doing. God is all-powerful even over Satan. But I also think what we derive from this is that there are times of testing that come into our lives and we cannot here in this life and on this earth comprehend the purpose of them. But let me help you understand some doctrine concerning our adversary, the devil. Satan is not omniscient. Satan is not omnipotent. Satan is not omnipresent. The fact is, at this point in time, Satan cannot see the future. He does not know how Job will respond to this testing. God is omniscient, and God does know how, how Job will respond to this testing. And so, as this is unleashed, God will use Job and his uprightness and his integrity and his maturity to overcome Satan and to accomplish his purpose. Why did Job go through this? Well, we have a little bit of a hindsight view that Job didn't have. And so when hardship and suffering come into our lives and we demand to know why, sometimes we will not comprehend why until we're there because we will not have that hindsight until that point in time. But we have an adversary. I've worked really hard to try to prop up, to build up Job in your sight as the scripture does. There was a man. He lived in us. 
He was the greatest in the East. He did have actual substance. He had business. He had children. He was perfect and upright. He did fear God. He did shun evil. God did greatly bless him. And there was a conversation in heaven where Satan goes after Job and the purposes of God are established. And and we have an adversary. And we're about to experience some of the hardest scripture in all the Bible to dig into. It begins in verse 13 where we are going to witness really in short order. And I think perhaps even the conversation that we are going to uncover probably took about as long as it's going to take me to read it. If you want to watch somebody's life implode, if you want to watch somebody's world unravel, we're going to begin reading in verse 13. And by the time I finish verse 19, in that amount of time, Job will have lost everything. In verse 13, and there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven, and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking... There came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, There came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young men and they are dead and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. However long that took, which was mere seconds, maybe just over a minute, Job has lost everything. And this is not an allegorical thing. This happened to Job. Everything that he had ever amassed, everything largely that he had ever cared about or loved was completely gone in an instant. As the first messenger arrives, he simply says, Raiders have come from Arabia, and they've stolen everything, and they've eliminated any witnesses. Fire destroyed the sheep and the shepherds. And so that you're not perplexed, Job, the fire came from heaven. Can you imagine Job scratching his head thinking, the fire came from heaven? It's as though God himself is working against me. The third messenger has arrived, and he says, Job, the Chaldeans, those fierce warriors from northern Mesopotamia, have swept down, they've stolen all 3,000 camels, and they've killed anything else that breathed. I'm the only one that made it out. This is financial ruin. This is unbearable, already unbearable. And the fourth arrives and says, a wind came out of the wilderness, A wind like we've never seen before. It was like an explosion of wind that came out of the wilderness. There was nowhere to run. There was nowhere to hide. It pressed in on the house and the walls collapsed. And all of your children are gone. They're killed. It's over. Job has nothing. I can't even begin to wrap my mind around the magnitude of that loss. It is unbearable. 
At times you struggle to read the book of Job because you're wrestling with really deep, hard questions. And at other times it scares you to think this stuff can happen to God's children. This stuff can happen to the best of the best. That means this stuff can happen to me, not because I'm the best of the best. It's unimaginable to read this. You say, well, thank God he had his wife. Well, in Job 2, 9, his wife said unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. To be quite honest with you, and I don't say this flippantly, I think death at this point would have probably been a reprieve to Job. And and, and he's going to say that. He's going to verbalize that shortly. Curse God and die. She's even going after now his spiritual culture, his own spiritual heart. Curse God and die. His friends come around him and they accuse him wrongly. They imagine that any man who's suffering with this kind of loss must be a sinner and we still all have that mindset. Anybody who's dealing with hardship, what sin's going on in there? Even those, when the man born blind comes before, they say, well, Jesus, who sinned? Did this man or his parents that he was born blind? And, and the Lord just says, this was for the glory of God. Sometimes we ought to just back off our assessment of people's life situation and limit our words more than we do. We don't know why. Interestingly, Job forgiving his friends false accusation of a sinful condition is the catalyst that opens the door for God's blessing much later in the book. Our adversary, an unimaginable loss, it brings us to the number one question. How do you bounce back from loss like that? I don't want to pretend like this message has all the answers Really, it doesn't even communicate all that Job conveys. But I do think there are some ingredients of bouncing back that are shown to us here by Job that I want to communicate to you to help you to be resilient in a season of life like this. Number one is simply this. He returned to basic priorities. In verse 21, Job has just concluded all of the messengers arriving on the scene. And he is about to speak something that is from his core. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We are about to really see who Job is. We're about to learn who he is at his core under the greatest amount of heat. Here's who Job is in verse 21. Here's what he said. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, let me be careful to say, you can't have that attitude and you can't speak that from the heart if that's not already in you. You don't find that in the moment and spit that out. This is who Job was. It doesn't get any clearer. It doesn't get any more graphic than this. Every one of us was born with nothing clenched in our little fists and every one of us will die without our hands holding anything either. The tragedies in life have a way of stripping away the insignificant and leaving us only with the significant. And what Job is left with is God. Number two principle is this. God's in charge of giving and taking. That's what Job communicated. He's letting us see his deep faith in the character of God. He's acknowledging that God has the right over everything that is his. His possessions... His health, his kids, his business, 
his employees, his future. Job says, as he lies there with a sick stomach in a heap of dust, the Lord gave me all of this, and now the Lord has seen fit to take it all away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, when I say that he knows that God is in charge of giving and taking, I don't mean that in any way Job is acquiescing the right to God to take what is rightfully his. What I mean is that Job's attitude is such that he is aware, this is God's right. Everything that I had, I had from God. Satan's accusation against Job indicated that Job was ignorant. Satan said, well, the only reason that he blesses you and the only reason that he worships you is because you have blessed him. And when Job says, look, I am aware that everything that I had was given to me by God, he negates the accusation of Satan against him. Job didn't live ignorant of the fact that everything he had had come from God. He says it. God's in charge of taking what he had given me. The third principle is this. Smartly, he didn't play the blame game. That's what we try to do. Sometimes we try to find reasons why and we'll point fingers. And Job in verse 22 says, In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. How ignorant, how stupid, how foolish it would have been to point your finger at God and charge God foolishly. One wrote, He refused to plant seeds of bitterness that would grow deep roots, that would cloud his perspective, stifle his worship, and shrivel his soul. He refused. I'm not going to charge God foolishly. I'm not going to capitulate in this emotional condition and play the blame game with God or others. The fourth principle is this. It's okay to hit rock bottom. I referenced a moment ago, That when Job's wife said to him, Job, here's your only out. Here's my best advice. Curse God and die. I can't believe you're still worshiping God. In Job 3, Job begins to speak. After this indicates, after everything he's dealt with, he's beginning to speak in verse 3, or chapter 3 and verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed his day. And here's what he said. Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said, there is a man-child conceived. Curse the day I was conceived, let it be hidden in darkness. Curse the day that I was born, I wish it had never happened. This pain is so overwhelming, this loss is so grievous, I wish I had never been born. You say, that's rock bottom, precisely. And I'm saying to you, it's okay to hit rock bottom. Sometimes we think spiritual strength and faith in God means I don't mourn or grieve. Wrong thinking. Wrong theology. It's okay to hit rock bottom. Just don't live there. This is everything Job said. I'm not just talking about the loss of someone you care about. I'm talking about your career arc. I'm talking about your material possessions. I'm talking about losing something that you held on to. It's okay to hit rock bottom. I note this as well. Remember that God doesn't disown you. Because the devil likes to whisper to us, he doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. In Job chapter 42, you say, well, good night, You just skipped 39 chapters. And I said in the first service, I'd be glad to preach all 39 of them to you here and now if you want to hang out. It'll take a couple weeks, but I think you'd rather have lunch. So I'm skipping to chapter 42. 
God is beginning to speak now. God is beginning to speak. Where heaven had been silent, God is now speaking very clearly. And in Job chapter 42 and verse 7, there's a lot in here. I really only want to grab two words for application purpose. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, that's one of his friends, the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee, and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Just grab those two words, my servant Job. Why is that important? Now, again, we've skipped a lot of story here. He's talking to Eliphaz, the Temanite, but he calls Job my servant. And I, in this moment, I can see Job sitting there. This is a broken man. This is a guy who doesn't have anybody in his corner and no one that he cares about largely is left. He is humbled in every way you can be humbled. And I can hear him sitting there in the corner listening in on God's conversation with Eliphaz and his two friends. And I can almost see him with tears streaming down his cheeks. And when God says, my servant Job, I can picture Job in my mind cocking up his head. And thinking to himself, you called me your servant. I'm still yours. That's enough for me now in this moment to realize God hadn't disowned him. Don't listen to the lies of the devil. That God disowns you in those moments. Number six is remember this, and this is one of the hardest things to grasp. Your best is yet to come. You say, Pastor, I'm pretty sure Joel Osteen said that. Did you steal this from Osteen? No. I did steal $600,000 and hide it behind a toilet in Lakewood Church. If you've not been following the news, that sounded really weird. If you have, that sounded like I just incriminated myself. I'm just going to let it all hang. Who cares? In Job 42.12, there's a phrase that I almost can't wrap my brain around. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job... More than his beginning. Now I could go through the statistics. He had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 she-ashes. He has kids again. But just grasp that phrase. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than he did the beginning. And God really blessed the beginning of Job's life. Here's what I want you to grasp. We always imagine that when we suffer, our best days are over and behind us forever. We learn here that in a way, maybe we won't understand it, God blesses Job's later life more than his early life. Your story is not over. So yeah, but that that job was my identity. Well, that may have been a problem. That relationship, I poured myself into it. My career arc, everything that I've amassed evaporated in a moment's time. I loved her. I loved him. I loved them. And God took them. Things will never be good again. Your best is yet to come. And in ways that I cannot understand, comprehend in a way to communicate properly, God's sovereign plan is that you are here and now, which indicates that he has his best yet for you. Your best days are not behind you. They are ahead of you. Your best is yet to come. And then this last principle, and this may sound morbid, remember that all of us die. Remember that everybody dies. And remember that when we die, our little clenched fists aren't holding anything. 
In Job 42.17, we read this. So Job died being old and full of days. That's a Hebrew way of saying he was satisfied with a full life. I point this out because for the believer in that moment when we die, what we will see is that everything that happened to us in this life was according to God's plan and was worth it. Was worth it. That his affliction, Job's affliction, as great as it was, was light and momentary. And worked within him, produced within him a weight of glory far beyond comparison of any earthly thing. This is what Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians when he writes, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding, and get this, eternal weight of glory. Our affliction, as heavy as it may seem in this life, when seen through the eyes of eternity, will be deemed as light, particularly in comparison with the glory that it is working in us, which, by the way, we will enjoy for eternity. I don't understand all of that, but I do know this. All of us will die, and no matter what weight we're carrying, one, we grasp this reality. It's temporary It won't last forever. But what will last forever is the sheen, the residue of glory that that affliction has produced within us. And that we will enjoy in the presence of God for all of eternity. Remember, all of us die. You say, well, these principles certainly don't answer all the questions that I have, Pastor. I get it. And I wouldn't cheapen this message by saying I'm smart enough to tell you everything. But these are some ingredients on bouncing back from unimaginable loss. And one more. No Christian, no believer, not one of us is immune from heartache, suffering, and loss. If this stuff happens to Job, this stuff can happen to us. And as God's people, we do know we can bounce back because of that. We are his people. But can I just end by encouraging you in this way? Don't let go of the rope. As hard as it may be, Don't let go of the rope. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of John Howland, the young man who fell off the Mayflower. He was an indentured servant. He belonged to somebody. He was indentured. He was on the Mayflower and he was told to stay down below the deck in the crowded hold of the ship with all the other pilgrims. You can imagine, I can really imagine, it was dark, smelly, And crowded down there. So one day he decided to get fresh air for himself. He climbed up the ladder and he popped open the hatch and he stepped out onto the deck. The sea was tempestuous in that moment of time. And when the ship lurched violently to one side, Howland flew overboard right into the raging sea. And that should have been the end of him. Somehow Howland, who was a 20-something, managed to grab onto a rope. And he held on for dear life. At times, he was pulled 10 feet beneath the water, but he never let go of the rope. Sailors aboard the Mayflower somehow managed to haul him back into the ship. There was a book written by Nathaniel Philbrick, and he writes this. When William Bradford wrote about this incident more than a decade later, John Howland, the indentured servant, who had been cast into the sea, was not only alive and well, but he and his wife Elizabeth were on their way to raising ten children. Those ten children would in turn produce an astounding 88 grandchildren. Which means some of you really need to get to work. That's a pretty high ratio. 
If he'd have ever let go of the rope, he would never have lived to be married, to father children, to see his grandchildren, or to be the progenitor of millions of Americans. But he held on to the rope. Don't let go of the rope because God still has you here. And what the devil would love is for nothing more than to keep you in your ash heap for all time. And what Job teaches us is our best is yet to come. You say, don't sell me something you can't follow through on, Pastor. Don't worry about what I can follow through on. Remember that your heavenly Father is still your heavenly Father. And the same heavenly Father that sets the hedge and offers the blessing is the same one that can allow the suffering. And sometimes he's working eternal things out. And sometimes he's working his purpose over our adversary. And we're never given insight into that. But what we can do is return to form, even in seasons like this, where our pain is exposed to a greater degree. Our financial situation is probably never more raw than it is now, because you wish you could do this, or you wish you could give that. Maybe it's a health situation, and everything should be picture postcard perfect, but when it's not, you can bounce back, even from unimaginable loss. Would you please bow your heads just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.